Welcome to C-Talk, a podcast about pedagogy sponsored by the Council for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at Illinois Wesleyan University. I'm your host, Kate Brown, and in this episode, I'm talking with mathematics professor Andrew Shalou about teaching online as a matter of policy. Welcome, Andrew. Hi there. Thanks for having me, Kate. We are thrilled to talk to you today. Uh, this is a topic that you actually brought to CTAL. Um, and as soon as we heard that you wanted to be on the show, we're like, yes, this is absolutely what we need to do. So you took a different approach at in-person classes this semester and took a little bit different approach to how to structure the online teaching component of that. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that is? Yes, a little bit more context as we get started. I should mention I'm actually in computer science now. So after being a mathematics professor for 10 years, I'm now housed in the computer science department. And so this academic year, I've been teaching computer science courses. And this spring semester in particular, I had CS 127, which was taught as a fully online course. Um, also CS 440, which was taught as a high flex course, and then CS 357, which was taught as an in-person course. And so that's the context and a little bit more context. So I wanna focus especially on the CS 357 course. Its title is Models of Computing. It is a course that focuses on theoretical computer science. And so it's especially interesting and appropriate for me with my background in mathematics. It, to a large extent, it is a math proof course. It's a math proof course that is focused on computer science majors and some of the topics, the ways of thinking about computing that are useful for computer science majors. Also worth knowing is that it's a writing intensive course. It carries the writing intensive flag. I had 14 students this semester, this spring semester, but it is typically capped at 15 and that feeds into part of the organization of the course as well. Oh my goodness, there's a lot to unpack there. Now I come from the humanities, strictly humanities. I don't know anything about math. I don't know anything about computer science, although I work in the IT department. So when, when you say uh, that this is a proof-based class and that it's writing intensive, what kinds of activities are you doing in this class? What are you asking your students to do? So the, let's see, class time versus turn in work. So a, a solid chunk of the course is based on what I call inquiry work. The idea of inquiry work is that students have flexibility in the proofs that they tackle, and most importantly, they have a chance to do redos as is necessary for a writing intensive course. So that a large portion of the course revolves around preparing students for inquiry work, supporting them for inquiry work, providing example proofs for them, talking about the logic, talking about the types of models that come up in these inquiry problems. And the source for these problems are things that I provide, also our textbook, also an alternate textbook that I provide. Um, and ultimately students could also search out other sources if they like, although not many do. So, and then that's a solid ch a chunk of the work outside of class. So then inside of class, I'm trying to prepare students for that. And there is some amount of lecturing but a decent chunk of every class period is activity time where students have a chance to work on, basically I'm helping them guide them through the steps of a proof. So they don't have to try to put together a multi-step argument from scratch. I've stepped them through, let's do this, then this, then this, then this, let's craft it into an argument. And there's a lot of give and take both between students in class and between students and myself. 
Wow, that is a lot. So I'm hearing there's discussion, there's independent work, there's maybe small group work if, you know, formally or informally, if they're helping each other. Um, what are, outside of in-person or online teaching, what kinds of tools are students typically using when they do this work? Is it pen and paper, actual computing machines? What, what are the, the tools of this enterprise? It is mostly pen and paper. Uh, most students are, even this COVID semester, most students are turning in their work on paper. The, and this feeds into why I, back in the planning time for this semester, um, January and December, why I wanted it to be an in-person class feeds into this. And so now is a good time to mention that there are lots of diagram drawings in this class, lots and lots and lots. There's three main models of computation that we're working with. And the main way that we work with them is through diagrams. The models themselves are diagrams, representing them with diagrams, tracing computation through these diagrams. And then the proof portion is then about the diagram. Here's a diagram, write a proof saying that this diagram always will accept this class of strings or something of that nature. Now, it is, of course, entirely possible for me or for students to create diagrams digitally rather than on pencil and paper. And so now it becomes a choice of time and effort and pedagogy of whether to insist upon it or not, both for myself and for students. And my experience is, is that even with uh, tip, the typical, well, I should just say, the typical tools that I'm familiar with for creating these sorts of digital diagrams, first off is that there is, a typesetting uh, language called LaTeX, Tech and LaTeX, and this has various diagram packages. It's basically its own little programming language or, or markup language, similar to HTML. And this is a mechanism by which one can typeset mathematics. It's something that I use all the time, and there are extra packages for diagrams. That's one mechanism. Another mechanism is to use something like PowerPoint to create diagrams or to use other tools. Draw.io is one that I'm a fan of. My experience is that compared to pencil and paper, creating diagrams digitally increases the amount of time it takes by about a factor of five. About a factor of three for myself and about a factor of five for students. And so then it becomes a question if I'm if I'm having myself create digital documents, then it's going to take three times as much work. If I want to try to manage my workload, I'm going to create three times fewer of them. If students are creating them, then I've got to change how much I'm asking of them. If there's going to be so much time wrestling with either to learn up front or to just it takes time to create all the objects, draw the arrows between them and possibly and obviously this gets better with practice and so then again that's a that's a question of whether it's going to be a core part of the course or not so my decision for this semester was i both for myself and for students i wanted to limit the amount of time that we spent creating digital diagrams and so that was what pushed me most especially towards an in person class for for 357 wow this is fascinating because i think when we've talked even on the podcast about courses that aren't easily able to be translated to an online environment. We usually think of those that have a heavy 3D component, you know, where you have to be in person. We've been talking about theater classes and music classes. Uh, it had never occurred to me that a computer science course could be made more difficult by moving to an online environment for exactly the reasons that you've described. But uh, I think there's this misconception. I think I was a little nervous saying that I don't know anything about computer science, uh, even though I'm in the IT department, the tools we use don't necessarily 
uh, have a one-for-one -one map to what we need to do with them or you know, how to understand them in the ways that you're talking about in your classes. That's really interesting. As a contrast, it's, it's useful to contrast it to a course that has a very heavy programming component where that's a lot easier to transition to an online format. In fact, in some cases, it's even easier. It's actually uh, because of code sharing tools, REPL.IT is one that we use a lot in, in, our, in our department. Uh, because of these code sharing tools, it actually is easier in an online meeting where I can pull up a student's code and then we can work on the code together and talk about it. It actually becomes a little bit harder if we have to, you know, if there's one person on the computer and we have to, to you know, talk over each other's shoulders or, or things of that nature. So, yeah, there are definitely other courses where the online, the shift to an online pedagogy is not so difficult. Sure. And when you're describing the amount of time it may take you and students to be able to do the same kinds of work, it, it becomes an issue of, should we do it this way? <laughs> Is this the best way, you know, to do it? So I, I don't know about all of our other listeners, but I'm, I can't wait to find out <laughs> how you handled the fall semester with this in-person class, which you very clearly demonstrated needs to be taught in person, I think. Um, so, so what was that? How, how did you handle that? So the, the most important, I've got two main themes that I want to communicate. And so the first theme was just on a matter of definitions and, and some more context for why I reached out to CETAL. At the most uh, recent faculty meeting, there was this discussion looking ahead to the fall semester about and one of there are several different interlocking pieces, but one piece that I caught on to because I had had to struggle with this myself back in planning this course was what does it even mean to have an in-person class if I'm going to be expecting that not all students are going to be able to be in person at all times? I have to take into account the fact that some students might be quarantining due to due to COVID. And the course can't just simply stop. There has to be some mechanism by which those students can participate in the class, even though they're not allowed due to policy to be in the classroom. And so it started from my point of view with the matter of definitions. What does it even mean when we, when we distinguish between in-person, hybrid, high flex? And the, what was interesting was that in thinking about those definitions, and, and I might have missed something, uh, but, but certainly when I was thinking about it, I was thinking, well, we didn't even define in-person because somehow that was the obvious thing that we had always done. What we defined was we defined hybrid and high flex. Mm -hmm. So the definition that I started from was my thinking on hybrid. The goal of a hybrid class would be for folks that are in-person or folks that are online, that the experience was as close to equivalent as I could make it. And that was how I treated my hybrid courses. And, and I'll admit, I had troubles distinguishing between hybrid and high flex in the end. I know, I know they had differences from the, from the registrar's point of view, but for me, the two ended up kind of meshing. Mm -hmm. When I had high flex classes, I had some class, some people in person, some people online, and I'm trying to make it equivalent. When I had hybrid classes, I had some in person and some online, and, and I tried to make it equivalent. So for me, I ended up giving up on attempting to make a distinction between those two. But thinking about that as, okay, a hybrid class is where I'm attempting to make the experience as equivalent as possible, then leads to the natural corollary that an in-person class is where I don't. Mm. Alternatively- Can you, can you I did, that was really important. Would you mind repeating that one more time just to let everybody sit in this? So 
I'm going to assume that there is a distinction between hybrid and in-person. Possibly there isn't, and we shouldn't attempt to make a distinction between them, but I'm gonna assume for the purposes of argument that there's a, di a distinction between the two. And if I assume that, again, working under the definition I've been working under is that a hybrid class is one where I attempt to make the in-person and the remote experiences as equivalent as I possibly can. Therefore, an in-person class is one where I don't. If I was attempting to make the experiences equivalent, it would not be an in-person class. It would be a hybrid class. Mm. And that, so there's that's... something really powerful about that. I don't know why I get really stuck on it, but yeah, I think it plays with the presumption that everything needs to be equal all the time. Every experience needs to be exactly the same, but you're pushing back on that and saying that, no, you made a conscious choice not to do that. And I think that's really powerful. So please go on. That's right. And, and by the way, this, as I hope listeners can tell, this is my mathematical training coming through, thinking about definitions, thinking about, well, how, what if I reverse, I make a claim, what if I reverse that claim, Do it does it still hold or is it different, what if I, so this is, this is my mathematical training. And this was the process I went through back in January when I was thinking about this course. I'm like, okay, so the experience is not gonna be equivalent. So what follows from that? What does that mean then? And, and again, I want to highlight, I, I don't, I'm not pretending this is the only answer. What I am claiming is that if faculty are feeling trapped by the idea that there's gonna be in-person classes in the fall semester, but some students might possibly be remote, then I would, I would claim that the reason they're feeling trapped is they're feeling like they have to make the experiences equivalent. Mm -hmm. And then I agree, you're trapped. Then it's not an in-person class, it's a hybrid class. So if it is, if it's gonna mean anything at all that we're in-person in the fall, then it has to mean that the experiences are not 100% equivalent. And then now the question is, well, in what way, how far? So now it's a question of degree. Like, okay, how, what accommodations can we make for students that are remote? What are those accommodations gonna look like? How much are they gonna disrupt the normal processes of the class? Uh, to what extent am I comfortable with that? To what extent can I sell it? Or, 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 or if I can't, then maybe I shouldn't do it. You know, if, if I can't give a good justification for students for why this is happening this way, then maybe I should not be doing it because it's not good for students. Sure. Uh, and, Let's see. And so then this is why, why policy in the title of this episode. So, so then the really the hard part that I struggled with all semester was on the policy standpoint, by which I mean, to what extent do I want to enforce whatever, whatever, basically I'm setting a policy for what it means to be in person and what it means to be remote. To what extent do I try to enforce that? I don't think anybody's going to be surprised to learn that, that many students just chose to be remote and they just chose not to come to class even though i would claim that the remote experience i warned them hey the remote experience is not going to be as good as the in-class experience and they chose it anyway mm -hmm. and so there's more to say on that front I apologize, I, I will edit this part out, but I am taking notes because I wanna make sure that I come back to some things. Um, and what I wrote down was, you know, that the cho students choosing a lesser experience is very, is very interesting. Um, so do you wanna pick up from the more to say on that? And we can yeah. come back to some of the questions I've got. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And so, so let's, uh, so now let me be more specific about, about how CS357 worked in the spring semester. So how it worked is that the intent was for students who were on quarantine, that this would be a temporary experience. And so then this temporary experience, they would be remote. There was a Zoom call set up. There was a camera in class. Students could log on synchronously to the Zoom call. Also, the Zoom call was recorded and I distributed recordings. And also, so that was one major piece. The second major piece was that because the camera does not pick up the board very well, and because, and, and the whole point, as I mentioned, was to try to capture diagrams. That's the whole reason I'm in person is so I can more easily draw diagrams. And the camera just doesn't pick up diagrams very well. And so what I also did is I took pictures of, of when I would have a board and I'd have a diagram, I'd take a picture and I would post it to a Discord channel so that students had access to uh, higher quality images of the diagrams that I was drawing. Mm -hmm. And so what students had access to was they had access to uh, the recordings, they had synchronous so that they could at least hear what was going on and they had pictures of the board. What they missed was they missed out on the interactive activity time. So I did not make an effort to have the remote experience be interactive. Again, to, to distinguish this from my hybrid and my high flex classes where I do a lot of effort to try to make sure my online folks are engaged in some sort of activity time. I made no attempts to do that with my remote students for CS357. And I think it's, I think it's useful at this point to remind everyone that when you are referring to your in-person class and and settling in the knowledge that this is not going to be the same kind of experience as your high flex and hybrid courses, that that doesn't mean that that effort is not done at all. It's just right. in this in-person class. And so if if there's anyone out there thinking that, you know, there isn't as much work or there, you know, not as much effort being made. It's like, well, it's defining things by what it's not. So that's where you're, you're putting the effort into making that experience more um, equitable between those in person and those remote. It's just in this in-person class, it's a very specific example of how you're doing this. Right. Mm -hmm. And also to emphasize that it's, it's the experience is not equivalent, but doesn't mean it's non-existent. There's a big difference between students not having access, they're quarantined and they don't have any access, no ability to engage with the class at all. That would be unfair to students if they were under quarantine and then not able to engage with the class. So sure. I really feel like I had to give them some mechanism of engagement. And then I wanted to try to pick up the pieces where students would fall through the cracks. And what this meant is it meant uh, extra, uh, so for quizzes, stu students who were remote had extra flexibility in terms of how they were turning in their quizzes. They had extra flexibility in terms of how they were turning in their work. They had extra flexibility, they had extra opportunities for office hours. I specifically reached out to my students who were in quarantine to say, hey, you know, the, the experience has probably not been the best the last couple of class days. How about we have office hours and, and try to catch up things that you missed? And all of this is working under the assumption that quarantine would be temporary, that students would be in so that so if this was to extend through the entire semester then it would become unbearable because I'd have students who are really not getting the experience that they deserve, frankly. 
uh, and, and it would be unbearable for me as an instructor to have students fall through the cracks, and it would be unbearable from the student's perspective if they're, if they're having to, to deal with this consistently. And so very much part of the assumption was it's temporary. Mm -hmm. So in this particular course, the 357, it, was that offered the semester in person and um, high flex or hybrid? No, or, one section, no. in-person section. Okay. One in-person section. I'm really interested in the issue of student choice. I mean, we've, we've talked a little bit about on the show about setting expectations for students and it sounds like you've done a really excellent job of, of laying it all out. So there's no surprises about what kind of experience they can expect. And like you said, many chose to go remote. Now, did they, the, the students who chose to go remote, did they understand that this was not intentional as, a, as an all semester setup? Yes, so, so among my 14 students, here was how it shook out. So among 14 students over the course of the entire semester, I had exactly one student who ended up being quarantined for COVID for the two week time period. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's sort of interesting that all of this setup, so it ended up being in, in place, engaged for one student who was in the quarantine for two weeks. And as mentioned, that student had opportunities to, to make up the quizzes. I had a couple of extra office hours with that student. It worked out exactly like I anticipated. I thought, you know, okay, this is, a, and, and the student was, I'm very grateful to the student for being clear with me. Um, this student said, this experience was, was not as good. And I'm like, well, thank you for mentioning that. And as an offer, as a counter offer, let me say, let's have fun office hours so I can catch you up on some of the things that you missed. Uh, so, and so for the, um, so, okay, so that was what ended up happening. In preparation for it, I was, a, I was concerned that it might happen a lot. And I wanted to cut down on the amount of organizational effort that I had to do. And so what I did is I just had a daily Zoom call. So, so it was just a link on Moodle. Okay, here's the daily Zoom call. And, and this is for people to log in in case they're quarantining. Uh, what ended up happening was that I had one student who engaged synchronously through the Zoom call for about two thirds of the class periods, and then it chose to attend in person about one third of the class periods. I had another student who chose to not engage synchronously with the course at all. In both cases, I was in, in you know, reaching out to these students several times. I had, I had conversations with both students and to make it, to make sure that they were understanding that this was bad, like this is not the intent and this is that you are not gonna have as good of an experience and you would really be better off if you showed up in person. And they acknowledged that, that and basically, you know, the conversation happens, many conversations of this sort where they say, yeah, 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 you're right, I'll come in person and then they don't. Mm -hmm. So of 14 students, I ended up with, with one instance of a two week quarantine two students who engaged very little with the course, and then 12 students who were there nearly every day. And of course, inquiring minds want to know, <laughs> those students who, you know, did, did, that, uh, did that play out? Did they not do as well in the course as you might have? Well, maybe you expected them, you know, to maybe not perform as well as they might have otherwise, but did they reflect back that, they wish they had done something differently or they, were they happy with the outcome? So that, that is hard for me to draw any generalizations from because it's such a low sample size. Mm -hmm. uh, the, and it's confounded with so many other things. So, so here, here is 
what I would, here would be the claim that I would make from observing, I'm going to, I'm going to broaden it simply so that I have a few, you know, so I can make some sort of generalization and have it make sense in my own head. My, my generalization would be that over this entire academic year, that there are definitely students who could really, really use the structure of having an entire in-person schedule. And, and I was hoping, so, so they're one of the students who was not engaging very much with this class. I worked with this student also in the fall semester. I was really hopeful that having at least one in-person class in the spring semester would help this student to engage with their classes and it did not. So the so um, that student is in is in rough shape in uh, more than not just my class, but in a lot of classes. And the other student is muddling through. So so okay. So I guess I ended up I guess I ended up asking answering more particularly, but more generally, I'd say that it's confounded by so many things. Like there, it really does seem like the the on the the freedom of having an online experience where there's more choices for how you engage with the class was freeing and for for many students okay for the majority and there were some for which in my experience it just seemed to destroy like now that they've got all this flexibility they can't it's it's trying to engage in a systematic way with difficult technical material was just was just not possible this is really interesting because if we're looking at data-driven decision-making, you know, you have 14 students in the class, three had a different kind of experience with that, either the two-week quarantine or, you know, the different kind of engagement. And uh, I think we've established I'm no mathematician, but that seems like a relatively low number to change your entire pedagogical approach or to completely rehaul how you deliver your course materials. And thinking ahead to the fall, um, I've heard a lot from faculty that the idea of um, the high flex mindset or the hybrid mindset where you do try to offer the same kind of experience, whether students are in person in your class or not, is very overwhelming. And I would say that what you've described for what you have done in terms of setting up the camera, sending the photos, you know, having office hours available, that to me speaks to that high flex mindset where you're attempting, you know, at least to, to make those, maybe not make the experiences uh, equal. You've really given me something to think about there, but at least to bridge it a little bit. So they're not totally disconnected because I think in in-person classes before online teaching, you know, if you couldn't be in class, you just weren't in class. And it was on the students to figure out who can I get the notes from? I've got to go to office hours. You know, there's that responsibility that students have when they're not in the classroom to keep up with the work. And so you are making an effort while acknowledging the experience isn't going to be the same, but to, to I guess, make it a little easier on the students to be able to access the, the class in ways that may not have been possible before. Um, so I just think yeah. As faculty are thinking through what do those in-person classes look like for the fall, I think one, the acknowledgement that not necessarily going to be the same, and also to use some of the data, maybe go back over your rosters and you know what kind of accommodations did I have to make and really get down to how many students does this actually affect and what is the where do I want to meet halfway uh, or at some other level, you know, where do I want to meet my students in terms of what they need and the responsibility that they have to direct their experience with their classes? No, that's exactly right. And, and so to, 
bring in the policy from the title. So the, so the key, other key message I would like to communicate to faculty is to think ahead of time about the inevitability that if there is in some sort of online engagement for quote unquote good or acceptable reasons that inevitably students are gonna to wanna to take advantage for what I, what faculty might consider to be quote unquote unacceptable reasons. And I was, I went for the, the absolute uh, low organization route for this class this semester. And in retrospect, I'm not too happy with it. Uh, and it, it, so my experience, and this is what I'm gonna do differently for the fall semester is to change around my policy. And the policy will be that students need to specifically contact me in order to have me set up some sort of, of accommodation for them in the eventuality that they have some illness that isn't just, you know, so, so again, it's sort of like, should we treat all illnesses the same? That's another question, right? And that one I haven't thought about. Should, should this just be standard for any and all illnesses? I'm not 100% sure. So I'm thinking still specifically COVID, specifically the sort of situation where students are not in class because of a policy reason, because of quarantine and, be, and it's temporary, not permanent. And it's, but it's not just one day, it's going to be several class days. So this is the situation I'm trying to target. And then if students make me aware of this situation, then I will set up something. I'll turn on a camera. I'll have some sort of Zoom call they can zoom in. I'll have some, some sort of, a, I'll, I'll make some, some modifications so that they can participate and make sure that they're not missing out on everything. So that's my plan for the fall semester. But I, but I, I definitely think there are multiple different policies that are appropriate here. And it's just a, important for faculty to think ahead of time about what policy to engage, what's, what level of enforcement do they want to engage in. You know, definitely uh, part of my, my attitude this whole semester was I don't want to try to waste, I don't want to bother wasting much time on enforcement. And, and then, you know, I had moments where I'm just sort of unhappy. I'm like, yeah, this, I really wish this student came to class, but I, you know, I, I also didn't want to try to enforce which reasons were good and which reasons were bad. It's just, it was just available and some students took advantage of it and oh, well, that was, that was a consequence of the policy that I had set up. Yes, I have a bit in my syllabus about attendance and it actually says, I am not the arbiter of your life choices. <laughs> if you want to make whatever decision you want, that's fine. But here, here's the structure. And I've, I've, I've always operated in a sort of high flex way where I either have make it available for students to join us by Zoom or even FaceTime, you know, before Zoom was a thing. And then we have a shared Google doc where students can write, you know, comments and we can interact that way. But my policy is more like you get three complete absence days, and then you get three remote days. And I, I, I think it was getting toward this idea of not really a free for all. Cause like you said, if there's too much choice, then some students get really overwhelmed. And now we're, it's like swinging the other way. We put these accommodations in for students who, you know, need a little bit of support in a different way, but it's actually harmful if there's too much choice for some students and, you know, finding the balance of that can be kind of difficult. And I think for the fall, what we're going to see is that we're going to have one set of policies sort of global policy of this is what online teaching or in-person teaching looks like for fall, which I hope that we, uh, I'm on the committee that's going to be writing these policies. So we're going to have, um, you know, kind of what we learned and what, we need to do from an actual ADA accommodation standpoint, but also really narrowing down the definitions. I think that's really key. And 
I think even though we've been working this way for about a year now, um, those, the definitions of those four modalities aren't necessarily clear to everyone. And I'll just sort of, you know, as we're thinking about this. So in-person is the expectations that students are in the classroom, the physical location on campus during their scheduled time. Hybrid is that they, the faculty can decide when students need to be in person and when they do not need to be in person, but there is a required element there. High flex is you should get the same experience one for one, whether you are in the classroom or uh, away. And then online, I think, is actually the one that is the squishiest for me because we've, we've never really said what online teaching is. And if there's a whole modality around it, does that mean it has to be synchronous? Can it be asynchronous? You know, what is the level of that? So I'm hoping that we're going to get toward um, some more definitions that make individual policies possible. You know, do you want to handle it with an attendance? Do you want to handle it with uh, reaching out? I think the idea of requiring students to reach out if they want this kind of accommodation is really useful. Um, I know that, again, there's a difference between the ADA um, kind of accommodations that go through the Office of Accessibility Services, but there's also kind of a, a sort of unspoken accessibility thing, because not everything qualifies. Things like chronic pain um, may not qualify for an ADA accommodation, but if you work with a faculty member on, you know, this is kind of what I need because I don't know what my pain level is going to be like every day, you know, that could be that could be uh, very interesting. And yeah, you know, what, what counts as not wanting to be in class or, you know, at what point do faculty have to sort of let go on, well, these students are going to engage the way they want with the class and there's really nothing I can do about it, but I've at least, I can sleep at night because I've set up the policies that make me feel like I'm helping more students than not. I want to jump in, Kate, to say that you just helped me uh, distinguish between hybrid oh, and flex. So, the, <laughs> so I think you're exactly right. Hybrid, the the decision is with the fact is mostly with the faculty member, and with high flex, the decision is mostly with the student whether they engage remotely or in person. So that that distinction just helped me. The but Good. let me let me definitely say on the matter of definitions that something that I I find hard still to wrap my head around for the potential for fall semester is the the news to me from the most recent faculty meeting was that there might still be uh, because of various health concerns or other concerns there might still be students and or staff who are who are fully remote and and so to loop back around to the beginning of, of the of the discussion here it's hard for me to see how if there's even just a single student who is remote the entire semester it's hard for me to see how it how it counts as an in-person class anymore. The because now if it's the entire semester, it's no longer temporary. It's a lot harder to justify that that the experience is not going to be equivalent. It may, it's still, I, I still think it can be, but it's certainly harder. Like it's a lot easier to justify this is not the same experience, but it's okay, it's temporary. And I'll and I'm here to help fill in the gaps. That's a lot harder to do when it's it's something that's lasting the entire semester. So I, it's unclear to me how many of those cases we're going to have. I would anticipate that it's few, very few. So I'm, I'm, I'm anticipating that the typical experience is the one we focused on where, where students are able to attend in person. And then there might be these cases where they're in quarantine and, and, we, and we as faculty need to have some 
uh, some mechanism to, to deal with this and to have some, some thinking on what, how we're going to deal with it ahead of time. I think that's a great point. And still, you know, what does temporary mean? Is it the temporary two-week quarantine that is, you know, the guideline, the CDC guideline, or is it, you know, does a whole, does one week of classes count as temporary or, you know, figuring that out, I think is, is going to be a bit of a challenge too. But I think it's, it's what I'm hearing in, in everything we've been talking about today is more about the intentionality of how to set up the course, how students should engage, what faculty are willing to do to make these accommodations possible. And in the past on the show, we've talked about different methods, you know, how to do this. And I was just thinking of one and I thought, I wonder if that's even necessary, <laughs> but you know, there are certainly things you can do. Like if you have a Zoom call that's only available to the students who have the, you know, instructor approved accommodation well that you know that's sort of easy to set up but it's really this thinking through okay what am i going to do how is this going to happen what is temporary versus permanent for the semester and yeah even if it is a few students it still requires thinking through so that's a lot of labor um, on the part of the faculty and you know we certainly have resources available either through its or in academic affairs or even just among you know, colleagues in a department to sort of think these things through, but I think it's worth mentioning that it is extra labor, no matter which way you slice it, and I think that needs to be recognized. Indeed. Is there anything else about the semester? I feel like this episode is required listening for <laughs> anyone uh, teaching in the fall, if only to jumpstart thinking ahead on, you know, what those what those uh, policies and and how how the structure is going to be, but I, I definitely am going to encourage everyone on the policy making committee to to listen to what you have to say and um, thinking through this experience. I think also what you said about making the typical experience the one we need to focus on. I, I think we find this a lot in IT, where we want to be all things to all people at any possible configuration that might occur. And I get the sense that that's a lot, that's how faculty tend to think about um, either, well, any kind of course modality, especially now that we have four, but particularly with the hybrid high flex is I could have one student who's out for two weeks. And so now I have to think about all the possibilities that this could be, but I think refocusing on what is the typical experience I want to have for this class this semester, and then build the policy and build the course structure around that, I think is a very useful exercise. And I would add that it's nice being at a small school with small class sizes in general, the, that, and this to acknowledge this isn't possible for all students, uh, for all faculty with all classes. Some, some classes we have do get quite large, but I, mm -hmm. but I definitely find that then I can plug in the gaps sort of ad hoc. So if I have a policy set for, or if, if I have a preparation, preparation versus policy versus fill in the gap. So my, my preparation is for the typical case. I have policy to determine what to do in the atypical case. And then I'm trying at an ad hoc way to fill in where students need extra help. And I feel like I can do that. And that's something I enjoy about being a faculty member at Illinois Wesleyan. That's amazing. I think you've just created a model for pedagogy. I mean, the, those three scenarios and building out from there. I We're going to have to have a whole second episode on parsing out what those things mean and giving some examples. And I'd love to know if you're listening and you start thinking about uh, your class this way, I, I would love to hear it and interview you 
about how you learned from Andrew's interview today. <laughs> well, Andrew, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the Talk audience today? Nope, that'll be everything. Thanks so much for having me, Kate. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Andrew. And everybody, there will be notes in the show notes on our Talk website with some of the links to the resources that Andrew shared, which I think the Draw.io is definitely applicable to a lot of different uh, disciplines. So be sure to check that out. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you. Welcome to Talk, a podcast about pedagogy sponsored by the Council for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at Illinois Wesleyan University. I'm your host, Kate Brown, and in this episode, information literacy librarian Chris Sweet offers an introduction to open educational resources, what they are, where to get them, and how to use them in your classroom. 